Welcome to another great episode of Dream Business Radio. I'm your host, Jim Palmer, the Dream Business Coach, and this is the podcast to learn how to create your dream business so you, too, can live your dream lifestyle. Yes, by the way, I said you, too, because you are learning right now from someone who has done what they teach. I've created multiple six-figure businesses. I do get to live my dream lifestyle aboard my yacht, my, what I call my floating home with my wife Stephanie and our rescue dog Blue. So buckle up for uh, some truth and some straight talk about what it takes to create a dream business. And uh, I'm really excited about this week's show. My special guest is Drew Davis. Let me uh, introduce Drew and bring him right on. Drew Davis, having led in both restaurants and as a, a startup, Drew is no longer to the travails of, I'm sorry, Drew is no stranger to the travails of leadership, mentorship, and management in chaotic, cash-constrained environments, and that certainly describes the restaurant industry. He currently serves as human capital advisor to Fulcrum Investing and as an engagement manager for Artemis Connection. He recently published his first book, What I Learned Before 30. Drew climbed the ladder to the restaurant industry, as many do, with a great deal of empathy, a little bit of luck, and a massive amount of overconfidence. That sounds like me 20 years ago. After graduating from Harvard in 2009, he worked his way up from being a busboy in Boston to being a beverage director in New York City, where he managed the buying, pricing, and selling of wine, beer, and spirits for the restaurant. And um, he decided that he wanted to uh, have more ownership of the guest experience that he was creating, so he took to Chicago to see how Booth could set him up in his own restaurant. While attending Booth, Drew met his business partner, Hunter Schwartz, and the two quickly realized that they their shared background in endurance sports mixed with uh, complementary work experience could build something pretty remarkable. Drew joined the Eastman Egg Team in January 2014 and served as COO for three years, in his time there, the company grew to four operating units and grew its revenues and team by a factor of 10. So, man's got some experience. Drew, how are you doing today? I'm doing re- really well, Jim. Thank you so much for having me on. I almost I almost lost in the very beginning because um, right before we went live, folks, I was telling Drew I'm a professional. I've been interviewing people for six years. <laughs> I completely messed up the first sentence, but I decided to let I'm going to roll with it because that's, that's what people expect. So, um, so Drew, are you are you uh, kind of a first generation entrepreneur, or did you have any parents or grandparents inspire you? Uh, it's a great question. So my dad uh, has been in private equity for about 35 years, and about halfway through his career, he launched his own uh, his own practice. Um, so he he definitely had something of an entrepreneurial bug, or at bare minimum, the notion that he really wanted to have uh, control over the entity where he was spending, you know, at least 60 to 80 hours of his week, yeah, year in and year out. Um, so that was definitely always something I was aware of and something I was very uh, proud of that he was able to do. And I think I just ended up getting the itch a lot sooner than he did in his career. Right. The one thing which I, I read and I almost had a little pause there was it's a, your uh, your bio. After graduating from Harvard in 2009, you worked your way up from busboy. Did your, were your parents thrilled that when you graduated Harvard, you started as a busboy somewhere? Or was that just kind of part-time work while you – were pursuing your higher career? You know, I, I don't know if I would use the word thrilled, which is not to say that they weren't at all supportive. I think, if anything, they were a little bit befuddled. 
Um, but, you know, as you can imagine, graduating in 2009, uh, it was just sort of a challenging time in the job market. And I think, you know, when I reflect on our class, uh, I think people kind of fell into one of two directions. People either were able to land, uh, you know, the types of jobs that have uh, traditionally served people coming out of Harvard, whether that be investment banking or investment management or management consulting, whatever it might be. Um, I did not and certainly tried and interviewed a lot of places but didn't have a lot of success there. A lot of other people found a lot of really interesting nonprofit and charitable opportunities that really took them around the world and, and gave them access to travel. Um, and for, for whatever reason, that just wasn't where my, my head was. My plan was literally I was going to go to San Francisco and just figure stuff out. Um, but in the second half of my senior year, I had actually been volunteering at a restaurant just because I had always really been intrigued by the elements of service and learning more about wine. And, you know, when, you, when you've only been 21 for six months, wine is really cool and you want to sort of better yeah. understand all the mystery behind it. Um, and so they said to me, you know, look, you're a smart kid. We'd love to have you around. If you're willing to, to, to put in the work, we can provide you opportunities to, to learn a lot about management, about how to run the business, and about how to really get your foot in the door. So the, the good news is, to your, to your earlier question, it wasn't, you know, like I was just a busboy three nights a week and then pounding job ads the rest of the time trying to find something. You know, I really committed to restaurants, and I think that – that helped actually make it better and that I was pursuing it as a way to grow and to learn rather than just kind of a placeholder uh, or a place where I might get stuck. So you're, so you're pretty big in the, re, uh, in the restaurant field, which that's got to be, I don't know of many businesses that have more of, you know, kind of a, a failure rate, if you will, which just speaks to how hard it is to, is than the restaurant industry. I mean, is that like the top of the heap when it comes to risky businesses? Uh, well, you know, it's funny. It's like if you look at a lot of the money that's flowing around Silicon Valley going into these tech ventures, uh, <laughs> I would actually argue that the idea that you're going to take an app and grow it to $10 billion, which is what a lot of people raise money on, is a lot riskier than, you know, making hamburgers and serving them for a reasonable price. Um, I think there's no question that restaurants, uh, given how popular they are, given how much people talk about them, given how much media coverage they've been getting, particularly in the last 10 years, they operate on profoundly thin margins. Um, it's not a place where you get to really experiment and roll the dice unless you're really in, like, the upper 1% of 1%. Um, so I think, actually, the, the restaurant industry requires a great deal more discipline than a lot of people expect, again, because your margin for error is thin. And some, sometimes people who get into the industry get in because they're fun and they're impulsive and they love to entertain and they love to have a great time, but they don't bring the experience and the discipline necessary to sort of keep the train on the track, so to speak, with regard to your cost and managing all of your employees correctly and taking good care of guests, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, is it, is it hard? Is it difficult? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I think sometimes the restaurant industry gets a bad rap that, you know, unless you're, you know, like the, the, the best restaurateur in the entire country, it's just not possible. I don't think that's the case. I just think you have to be a lot more detail-oriented than people expect to be when they enter the field. What is the uh, Eastman egg team that um, I, I read about? I'm, I'm not familiar with that. Sure. So it was a fast, casual breakfast concept that I launched uh, with Hunter, who I met while I was at uh, U Chicago for business school. And uh, Hunter uh, had come up with a concept and actually envisioned it as a food truck. And the whole idea was, you know, how can you get better access to good food in the morning if you work in a high-intensity job like banking or consulting or some of the things that many of our, our peers and classmates were doing? 
Um, and so with that, sort of set out to create a really great breakfast sandwich that we could make in less than three minutes with a really good cup of coffee uh, in an environment that didn't feel like fast casual, that felt kind of modern and technology-oriented and really clean. Um, and so we opened, uh, as you read in the bio, four units over the course of three years um, and had a lot of fun with that. And that was great because I got to both sort of ride the entrepreneurial roller coaster, which was something I'd become really attracted to in business school uh, and from watching my dad go through, through some shades of it, um, but also really got to understand what is it like to own and manage a, a, a restaurant as a business rather than sort of owning and operating the floor or the more day-to-day -day operations of it, which was a really helpful perspective for me to have. So how's, what's, is that business still around today? Yep, it's, so it's still going in Chicago, um, and I ended up leaving uh, just over a year ago. Um, and part of it was uh, that the, the business is likely to go on to scale. It want, we're, you know, the, the ambition is to open many, many more Eastman Egg companies around the country. And when you sort of look at that challenge, you know, the, the best and most successful way to do that is to look for models of replicability and understand how you can basically make the processes repeatable and sustainable over long periods of time and in different geographies. I was always way more attracted to more of the creative side of, you know, what new menu items can we do for the season? How do we think about employee engagement, et cetera, et cetera? It's not to say that they're not thinking about those things. It was just not ultimately the priority. And so we agreed that it made more sense for, for Hunter with his background to sort of take on the challenge of, of scaling the operation and continuing to grow it throughout the country. So I'm still on the board. I'm, I'm still an active uh, advisor to the company and, and very much in touch with what they're doing. I just don't get up at 4 in the morning to, to make eggs anymore. <laughs> wow, that is early. Um, so did, did you, how did you become an expert in, like, company culture? Um, from being out there doing, from your schooling, or combination of both? Sure. So um, I, I think most of it definitely came from my, my active experience. And, again, I had an opportunity to start managing people when I was 23, so really, really early on in my career. And the other thing that I think is really interesting about the restaurant industry is that very few people are there for the long run. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but usually for, for many people, restaurants – provide them access to the time and space necessary to refine a craft, whether it be acting or comedy or writing or, you know, even going on to something like accounting or something more traditional. So when you have a culture like that, it's a really interesting tension of, you know, how do we help people be engaged and excited about what they're doing here, even though we know that, like, their ultimate long-term goal and incentives aren't aligned with being here for 10 years. Um, and I think managing people in that setting really helped me understand what are the things that make sort of the present reality of being at work and being involved with the team and being involved with the company really powerful and really meaningful, which is what really got the culture thing off to a good start. And then in going to business school and, and learning from so many of my classmates who had come from, you know, not only different uh, companies in different corporate environments, but also different countries, different, um, different actual uh, societal cultures as well, and sort of understanding how all of those different factors could start to influence and impact how a team worked or, or how people define success or how people like to collaborate. Um, so getting back to the, to the root of your question, a lot of it definitely came from, from restaurants and operating in, in a very unique culture as far as keeping people engaged and motivated and excited. But my MBA also gave me an opportunity to really push and poke and prod at those ideas by getting exposed 
to so many different people who had so many different experiences beyond what I had gone through. Gotcha. That's pretty cool. Um, so why do, you, why do you think so many startups fail? You've, you've been involved in, uh, in, in more than a handful now, and, and I guess is that Fulcrum investing your new businesses? Are you involved in, in startups there as well, Drew? Yeah, so Fulcrum Investing is a small venture capital fund out of Chicago, and we do mostly seed and Series A round investments in, in companies, um, certainly all around the country. But you know, they, we tend to focus in the Midwest just because that's where we get most of the uh, the deals coming across our desk. Um, get the the question was more simply, why do so many startups fail? Um, yeah, I think there's a, a couple of big reasons. I mean, I could probably go on for a very long time, but I think there's a couple of reasons. I think that there is a really tenuous and challenging dynamic that we do work very hard at Fulcrum to fight against, which is that, you know, people who are investing in small companies are trying to bet on the horse that's going to go to win the race, right? Like everyone wants to be in early on the next unicorn. So a lot of the conversations are formed around how do you make this idea a $10 billion idea? The reality is there's a lot of ideas that are great and that can serve a ton of people and make a lot of money that are not going to be $10 billion ideas. And rather than actually staying focused on a narrower set of metrics about how to really be successful and drive continuity and good user experience with a specific product, people continue to take these moonshots and continue to sort of rethink and revise their planning around like, you know, how do we scale this? How do we grow this? How do we go faster? How do we keep moving? Um, and as a result, they burn out their teams, they run out of funding, they lose track of, you know, how they're actually taking care of customers because they're so convinced that they're going to have millions more in the future that they lose track of the ones they've actually cultivated and have in the moment. Um, and I think there's a real dissonance between kind of the feedback they get about how they're doing and the reality of what they've been able to create in a short period of time that they really should be focused on and continue to cultivate moving forward. So honestly, like, I, I get I could probably go on for a while, but I think that is actually one of the biggest sources of tension and ultimately failure is that a lot of the incentive structures created for companies is not actually in the best interest of the company. It's in a portfolio of one of many, many investments for different funds or different individuals who are trying to, again, play the odds for which horse is going to win the race. You know, my second book was called Stick Like Glue, which was all about retention and, and things like that. And I think far too many companies just focus on more and more new customers. we got to get more new customers. And they, they completely overlook the greatest asset they have now, which is anybody that came in and at least purchased once, right? So does that, right. is that something you is that something you used to work on in the in the food business? Yeah, so one of the things that we did that uh, we actually got a lot of really positive feedback on was we tried to constantly evaluate what is actually the lifetime value of a customer for us and how does that evolve over time. And, you know, what's a little tricky is that it's obviously a bit of a lagging indicator and in that I can't necessarily perfectly forecast what your lifetime value will be in the next four to six months, particularly in restaurants when there's so much optionality. Um, but I do think that we did try and focus really, really hard on, you know, what brought them in the door the first time and then what brought them back. And sometimes those two things are very, very different. Sometimes it's the same. And then I think you can also start to ask questions of, like, what can we provide that would encourage repeat use or, you know, positive referral of bringing in other friends or coworkers or colleagues to try out the product? 
um, because we felt really confident once someone had had the product, we could we could get them back. The question was, what's ultimately going to draw them in and give them the indication that they should bring friends, they should tell people that this is a really cool and positive thing. So, yeah, it was something we, we worked on a lot, and it's it's a challenging – it's a lot harder than with software, right? I mean, with software, you can really get incredibly granular data on how people use and when they use and how much they spend and when they referred and not referred. And for restaurants, a lot of that's fuzzy because you're operating with – credit card data rather than cash, and sometimes that's imperfect, and et cetera, et cetera. But sorry, I'm getting long-winded. To answer your question, yes, we thought about that. <laughs> what What do you think is a – I mean, when you think of the restaurant – when I think of the restaurant business, I mean, you got the food costs, as you say, historically low margins, which I guess, in addition to food costs, labor is probably the, the, number, the number two challenge that they have. But And that seems like the turnover. How do you, how do you develop a culture in a place – where turnover is so high and does turnover does the culture actually lead to less turnover or you just got to keep doing the best you can and knowing that people aren't going to stay forever yeah no so i i think that uh culture can absolutely decrease turnover and increase positive outcomes and there are a number of restaurant companies that have proven that out rather successfully um nick's pizza which is uh based in the suburbs of chicago is actually opening their first location in chicago is a phenomenal example of that and nick cirillo the owner is is very well spoken and actually has a book that's all about kind of how he thinks about building culture in a restaurant setting and why it's so valuable and i would i would frame it to you this way the reason you see high turnover so often in restaurants is because two sides develop and ownership or management looks at their thin margins and then looks at labor as an enemy <laughs> and that like labor is squeezing the margin labor is losing money labor is wasting food they don't think of it as people they think of it as this input cost is not only expensive but it's leading to my other high input costs and they need to be minimized and so when it becomes less about human beings and more about pennies and dimes that's when you get really contentious relationships really unhappy people and that's when culture starts to fall apart when restaurant management and ownership can be more open with what the financial reality of the restaurant is so that each individual really understands the impact they have on the business, both with their time and how they spend their energy in the space, and then empowers them to create solutions to improve upon those margins or that financial reality. That's when I think you get really exciting outcomes. That's when you get better insights about your customers. That's when the restaurant starts to perform better. And that culture like obviously doesn't have a direct monetary ROI, can start to improve the top and bottom lines of the restaurant and create more breathing room, which, again, begets more space for people to enjoy the work and really engage with the guests, which encourages repeat business, which is a huge, huge driver for restaurant success. So, you know, I'm having thought about this quite a lot, as I'm, I'm imagining it's coming across on the phone, like, I wish that there was some formula where I could sit down and say, you know, if you're a restaurant averaging, uh, averaging X revenue and you have 10 employees, like each employee can improve by a factor of 20%, which is going to raise your top line by 35%, and that's going to hit the bottom line with 10%, which now means you have $50,000 more a year to improve the restaurant and blah, blah, blah. If you could actually create an algorithm that powerful, I think you would see a lot of change behavior in restaurants. The problem is, like, culture is murky. It's very hard to measure as far as quality, as far as consistency, as far as how it's actually going to function, and you have to invest in it for, you know, four or six months up front before you really start to see positive changes in attitude and behavior 
or in some cases kind of like digging yourself out of what has been a very negative culture for a period of time. And I think that's a, a scary thing to do, again, particularly going back to the fact that it's just not a high-margin business. So to answer your question, like, yes, I think culture is important, and yes, I think it actually can really help to combat the, the margin issue that so many restaurants face, but it's, it's not easy, and that's why not a lot of people end up doing it. Yeah, well, how can a company that's struggling a little bit with the whole us versus them mentality? How can they how can they come together and more align with the the strategy? With you know, have, have the ownership align the strategy with all the team members? Any any secrets there? Sure. Well, so uh, you know, culture ultimately comes from the top. I think that's true in a restaurant. It's true in a big organization. It's true in a small organization. So in many ways. Um, in my experience, you know, the first thing that really has to happen is that ownership has to, uh, frankly, kind of acknowledge and, and be accountable for the fact that they have been so nervous and so worried about these margins that they've allowed themselves to think perversely about the team and haven't created a, a positive environment. And I think, I mean, at the risk of making an analogy that isn't totally flush, like in the context of marriage, if the easiest way to resolve an argument is to acknowledge your own fault in it and that you want to improve it and make it better. So similarly, if you are working with a group of people with whom you spend a lot of time and energy, like the first step is really to just sort of acknowledge and humble yourself in front of them so that you can actually start a real conversation and a dialogue about how to make things better. And then once you've sort of broken through that glass, then I think you can actually have a better conversation about what needs to improve, what needs to change, and it can come from both sides. So you can actually have a more equal conversation versus one side just talking at the other. So, you know, to the extent that's a secret necessarily, I'm not sure, but I, I do think that being willing to acknowledge fault in order to start the process is usually a huge hurdle that once people get over, the conversation is so much better and so much less contentious that people are just relieved throughout the throughout the entire business, and I think that makes a huge difference in and of itself. So, Drew, what what made you want to write a book? And uh, again, your book is "What I Learned Before 30. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So, um, I, for reasons I, I haven't totally unpacked yet, definitely have an attraction to kind of big, scary goals. Um, I think there's just something really exciting about setting a high target and chasing after it and seeing if you can get there or how close you can get. So uh, have, are you familiar with the November Novel Writing Month by chance? Uh, no. So it's a, it's a nonprofit organization. It has a, a number of different goals and purposes, but the, the, the real thing that it's, it's known for and built around is every November they have an online tracker. And if you write 1,667 words a day for all 30 days of November, you have 50,000 words. And a huge sort of driver for why they do this is to help show people that you are capable of accomplishing really amazing things if you are dedicated to it and if you do an incremental amount every single day. So that, for me, just really resonated around concepts of personal development and, and pushing yourself and, and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, last November, I was still looking for a job. I was still trying to figure out what to do after Eastman, and that just felt like a really exciting and interesting way to invest some time. Um, and then the way that the, the actual sort of uh, direction of the book came around was that uh, I always like to tell stories. So when I sat down to write on the first day, I just thought about uh, an experience I had had maybe five or six years before, 
and I just started writing. And then from there, I went backward and forward and kind of fleshed out a bunch of different experiences from my life that I remember really powerfully as something that was either kind of a great learning lesson, a great uh, moral, a great success, a great failure in some cases, whatever it would be, and kind of wrote this whole this whole work. And it actually ended up being 60,000 words in 30 days. And then after that, I went on to add, I think, another 15,000 or so, and then went through the editing process, uh, found a freelance editor, and got it self-published on Amazon on my 30th birthday, which was March 30th. So it all it all kind of came together in a really nice way with a little bow at the end. Well, that's awesome. Where can so? Oh, I guess Amazon. I was going to say, where can people get the book? And then how can people connect with you, um, Drew, if they want to learn more about what you're doing, and uh, especially with uh, fulcrum investing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the book, is, as you mentioned, is on Amazon. It's Kindle or paperback, whichever you prefer. I have a goal to get it on Audible by the end of the year. Fingers crossed. Um, and as far as getting in touch with me, uh, you can email me at drew at fulcruminvesting.com. Uh, and I'm always happy to chat with people, whether it's about investing, startups, entrepreneurship, <laughs> books, whatever, whatever it may be. Sounds great. Hey, Drew, thanks for a good interview today. I really appreciate it. It's, uh shared some good stuff. Thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate the time. Hey, folks, that wraps up another great episode of Dream Business Radio. Uh, thank you to my editor's assistants, all the people on my dream team that make what I do look so doggone easy. Um, you can still get a copy of my latest book, Just Say Yes, Create a Dream Business and Live Your Dream Lifestyle. You can get that at JustSayYesBook.com. 695 covers shipping and handling anywhere in the world. 695, that's it. Um, just say yes, book.com. Until next week, another great episode of Dream Business Radio. I am Jim Palmer, the Dream Business Coach, and you take good care. <laughs>